This is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley, and you're listening to Episode 4 of our DebtWired series. In a minute, you'll hear from Greg Fox. He's a partner in Goodwin Proctor's Financial Restructuring Group. Greg's practice represents a range of party types from corporate debtors to equity sponsors, tort plaintiffs, and various creditor factions. His work also spans a host of industries, including retail, healthcare, automotive, technology, and more. On this podcast, Greg took time out to speak with our deputy editor, Reshvi Basu. The conversation goes through a host of workout issues, such as negotiations with landlords, and Greg lays out some expectations for 2021. Hi, I'm here with Greg Fox, a partner of Goodwin's financial restructuring practice, who will provide us with his view on the restructuring world in 2020. Greg, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're just going to get started. How would you size up 2020? And what did you see this year in terms of restructuring trends? 2020 was certainly an interesting year. I guess it's uh, the year of the sweatpants. Um, there was a lot of upheaval. Obviously, COVID was the, the big focus, and it, and it turned a lot of industries on their heads. So um, I would qualify it as essentially a year of winners and losers, Certain industries that were already struggling prior to March and prior to the pandemic really taking hold, such as you know, brick-and-mortar retailers and oil and gas market participants, were you know, severely impacted by the, the shutdowns and the impact of the pandemic. Um, a lot of these businesses were already on the precipice, and, and the pandemic really just sent them over the edge. Other industries kind of fall into the loser category as well, unfortunately, that were previously healthy. In these, in these industries, I'm thinking about uh, you know, hospitality, gaming, fitness clubs, airlines, right? These, these industries saw their revenues dry up overnight, um, and there's real pervasive uncertainty as to when those revenues will return to normalized levels. Um, that lack of predictability is, is a huge problem. You know, on the other side, it was really an interesting year because in March, you know, it looked like the world was ending, and it really didn't. You know, here at Goodwin and Proctor, you know, we pride ourselves on being one of the leading firms at the cross section of, of technology and innovation and capital. And you know, aside from a short lull in March, the firm has been going gangbusters with regards to transactions, often involving high tech businesses, um, because there is there's a lot of capital out there. And businesses that are innovating and focusing on a world of the future are really tapping into that capital. And, you know, I'm thinking about industries around biotech, green energy, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, any sort of high-tech business, I think, has a lot of access to capital at the moment, and there's a lot of deal-making occurring. And you know, one thing I want to touch upon, kind of the losers during this uh, cycle, that being the consumer-oriented operators, such as retailers, restaurants, and gym operators, we saw them struggle yep. this year. How did lenders position themselves in the capital structure, and what kind of trends did you see in those negotiations? Yeah, so the, the trends I'm seeing most in these sectors, like restaurants and gyms, is that the senior secure creditors in those cases are oftentimes the focal security. Uh, there's often minimal recoveries for unsecured and subordinated claims. So the focus on the part of those creditors is to really be part of the go-forward operation. 
um, either through lease amendments or through assumptions of contracts and the like, because if they're left behind with the estate with a general unsecured claim, they're, they're, they're looking at pretty dismal recoveries. Um, so these cases, when they do need to file, are often quick sales, uh, and it's really about whether the lender is going to be owning the business through a credit bid or is going to be accepting something less than full payment from a strategic buyer. You know, the focus of these investments is, is not just what it takes to acquire the business, the restaurant, the gym. It's also what funding is required after you close. That, and that's the big mystery. And that's why, you know, these negotiations are very tough because the lenders who are either taking a haircut or using a credit bid to acquire the business, you know, need to look forward into 2021 and beyond and, and understand, you know, how much revenues am I going to be looking at and how, how am I going to fill the hole and operate profitably. Um, so it's, it's, these have been difficult situations. You know, my partners recently worked on the, on the Il Molino restaurant bankruptcy. Um, we represented the senior secured creditor and, and, it, and it was the only bidder with a credit bid in the 363 process, there was no auction. And now, you know, the lender has the, the you know, the honor of owning a, a, a well-known restaurant chain, but also funding it into 2021, where, you know, restaurants presently in New York City aren't able to operate on, on even a minimal level. Um, so it's, it's really an uncertain environment. We also represent shareholders in the InShape uh, gym business that just filed for bankruptcy a couple of days ago in Delaware. And in that situation, the senior secured lenders um, sold their claim at a discount prior to the case, and it's the new owner of that debt that is putting in dip financing, put in a credit bid, perhaps there'll be an auction, um, or for perhaps they'll walk away owning, owning the business. But it's also, again, it's a thesis of how, how much are we going to have to fund to get back to a normalized revenue stream. How do you fund, you know, how do you project that given that we are operating in a zero revenue environment? So at, at some level, all projections are really guesswork, right? A projection is just an educated and informed prediction. Um, I think in this uncertain climate as to what the world looks like in a post-vaccine environment uh, needs to be viewed with conservative goggles on because anybody that's predicting that the vaccine rollout is going to instantaneously result in, in boom times and everybody um, hopping on planes and going to hotels and restaurants, you know, I think that's the hope. Whether that comes to fruition and how quickly it does is, is really the, the question mark. So how do you then pinpoint the enterprise value and assess recoveries? And have you seen multiples change from the post-COVID world versus prior? I think people are being very conservative in terms of, of growth. I think multiples are are tied to that and that you're seeing an increase, but at the same time, you're, uh, there's a lot of can kicking going on. So have things been transacting at the levels that, that you would expect them to? I think for the most part, they, they haven't. I think people are more interested in allowing businesses to survive. Uh, a lot of covenant relief was granted. A lot of liquidity was you know, pulled in through the capital markets and through uh, drawdowns on revolvers to allow businesses to get to next year and a world where people can shop and travel and live their lives on a, on a somewhat normal basis. 
and it's really the businesses that were starved of liquidity or businesses where you had opportunistic lenders that were able to you know, put in money in, in strategic ways into the capital structure to the detriment of, of, of other stakeholders, which we saw a lot of this year, and I expect we'll see more of in the coming year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing they saw this year was quite a few um, gym operators filed for bankruptcy, but why were these workouts for these operators so messy this year? Yeah, I mean, the gym business was, was really hard hit. Uh, you know, you saw Gold's Gym, you saw TSI, you saw 24-Hour Fitness, and now InShape just filed the other day. Uh, the real difficulty with the gym business is the predictability around around revenues. I know just from InShape, right, they, they had to shut down in March, and then they started reopening, and they had to shut down again. And if you're shut down, you can't bill your customers at the beginning of the month. And so being able to operate in – uh, in line with government restrictions for social distancing and, you know, coronavirus protections, being able to uh, bill in that environment is very tricky for the gym businesses. So you, you have to operate with an assumption that revenues are going to be way down, and it's really about negotiating with your landlords to get relief, to, to get into a post-vaccine world where people can utilize these services on a normalized basis. So that's, that's what a lot of these cases are about. It's about landlord negotiations. It's about rejecting stores and locations that are not profitable and can't be profitable because, you know, the disparity between the revenues and the, and, and the rents. And, you know, given these kind of seismic changes that we're seeing with the consumer, how do you assess how much debt a reorganized company can support? And how do you determine what a capital structure is going to look like, given there's so many unknowns? Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. I think you, you can't over-lever all these companies. Uh, I think there's been a lot of flexibility provided in the form of, of you know, payment and kind interest, and deferrals of amortization and things like that because debt service in a low revenue environment is, is you know, something that's going to strangle, strangle these businesses as they try to um, rebuild to a, a normalized revenue stream. So I think it's a very tricky question. You, you need to be conservative in terms of of expenses, you need to be conservative in terms of revenue, and what you have today may go down in the in the winter months. And I guess the hope is that come the spring, things will open up a bit due to the vaccine, and uh, you can predict with somewhat better regularity what the income will be. How you tie that to a debt load? in a restructuring is exceedingly tricky, which is why I think a lot of restructuring that could have been this year didn't actually happen. It was really the retailers and the oil and gas producers who were running out of liquidity and needed to go into a process to restructure um, in court that, that were the ones that utilized the court system. And we did see the pace of restructuring for like chapter 11 filings kind of slow towards the end of the year. Why did we see so much capital this year coming to the market? And were there specific industries that benefited from this added uh, liquidity? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the airlines is definitely one industry that benefited from, you know, a lot of capital in the, market, in the marketplace. The airlines raised billions of dollars this year, and they're, you know, they're, they're not projecting normalized 
utilization of their services, you know, for several years. I know United was announcing, I think, 2024, they're, they're predicting an, uh, it coming back. So it's, it's about survival to the end game. And I view the airlines as, as having been one of the key industries that has benefited from, you know, the flush capital markets and the low interest rate environment. So, and, you, you know, you're seeing it, you're seeing a lot in, in the travel space. I saw today the live entertainment space. Um, you know, raising a lot of money in the capital markets, and and look, it's it's really about these are these are businesses that people want to utilize. They're just not able to at the moment, and it's about getting to the point where they can. Um, and what about the tech space? We're seeing quite a bit of liquidity yeah. coming to that industry. Is there a reason why? Is it just kind of this growth proposition, or? Yeah, I think I think partly it's. It's psychological around, uh, you know, the COVID situation, but that, that's, that's only part of the answer, right? Psychologically, due to COVID, I think people are sitting on Zoom calls a lot and utilizing technology because they're limited in their ability to, to do other things, and it's in enabling them to connect in ways that they otherwise can't. Um, so there's a lot of focus on it, but also it's, the, the COVID situation has just been an accelerant in what was already happening, right? People were uh, moving towards, you know, work-at-home situations. People were, um, you know, utilizing cryptocurrencies. People were, you know, developing artificial intelligence uh, programming for, you know, a wide swath of industries. So I think, I think those were growth industries pre-pandemic, and now there's just more focus on them. And the, and the, the amount of capital out there that is, available and if you have a, a, a strong management team and business thesis you you have a lot of ears that you can you can get to to you know send write your checks and uh you know going back into restructuring were there certain situations that you were involved in where lenders weren't necessarily ready to take a haircut and then in that case what would you do in the negotiations and were there times when you couldn't quite when no one really wanted to be the fulcrum yeah, I've faced a couple of those situations, including during this past year. You know, I think there's only a few options, right? You you either kick the can if you're a lender and you don't want to uh, have a monetization event at this time because you feel like you're going to be taking a haircut that won't occur in the future, then you need, you know, to amend your covenants and amend, you know, and waive whatever defaults may exist to prevent a too early of a restructuring event. So you actually saw a lot of that this year during the summer. A lot of cans got kicked. A lot of uh, covenants got loosened. A lot of um, a lot of otherwise defaulting businesses were were preserved. So if you don't want to kick the can and you don't want to take a haircut, you're really your only other option is to take over the problem and own it yourself. And you know either do some sort of friendly foreclosure transaction or a you know 363 or restructuring type transaction in court to take over ownership. As I mentioned, my partners recently worked on the Il Molino situation for the secure lender, and you know that was the situation. So now they now they own a restaurant business and they have to you know figure out a way to operate it profitably in a, in a very difficult environment. So a lot of lenders aren't going to go that route, and their only other real option is to is to kick the can, but in, a, in an industry where, or in a, with a business that is running out of liquidity and needs a capital infusion, 
either you're going to do it or somebody else is, and if it's somebody else, they're going to they're going to uh, leapfrog you in the capital structure. So it's a very difficult position to be in. And you know, over the last several years, we've seen a number of restructurings in the retail space. Only you know, COVID nineteen only served to exacerbate those problems. Can you talk about real estate and the current state of affairs for landlords? Yeah, landlords have been suffering just like everybody else during this time. They've had it particularly rough in retail and restaurant Chapter 11 cases. As many of your audience members probably know, several courts during the pandemic granted requests by debtors to extend the time that the company has to pay post-bankruptcy rent. So not only were a lot of landlords facing uh, arrearages prior to the bankruptcy, they were also getting delayed in payments that were accruing during the case, which are viewed more sacrosanct in the, in the, in the landlord community. Um, but there is flexibility under the bankruptcy code to extend that period uh, up to 60 days for cause, and some courts have gone even farther than that. So, but just the other day, Judge Iskier down in, in the Southern District of Texas issued a ruling in favor of landlords and rejected uh, the company, in that case it was Chuck E. Cheese, the company's arguments in favor of, of forcing involuntary rent and relief through force majeure and frustration of purpose and other arguments. Other courts like the court in Pier 1 and the court in Ruby Tuesday have held the other way. So I, I predict that there's going to be, you know, appellate courts weighing in on these issues and you're going to see, you know, more and more debtors looking to get liquidity relief from their landlords during the cases, you know, also through negotiations, but with the threat of these types of court orders looming, you know, it's a lot of leverage in the hands of these companies. So, but the issue is that these landlords have their own lenders, and so if they're not getting the rent that they have bargained for, and they're either losing tenants through bankruptcies and, and store closures and the like, and also being hammered on rent on rent through through grants grants of relief, you know those landlords are going to have a harder and harder time servicing their own debt. And I see in 2021 and beyond a lot of restructurings happening in, in the real estate space because, you know, the, unless both lenders want to start taking over the property, some of which they may want to, right, you may see a lot of transfers of real estate ownership through friendly foreclosures, which we're seeing, in, you know, in the MES foreclosure, Article 9 space. We've, seen, we've worked on a few of those over the summer. Um, and, you know, even bankruptcies. But there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of shaking out to, be, to come in the, in the real estate space. Can you just kind of touch upon the foreclosure and kind of explain to me what that kind of entails? Yeah, yeah so a, a lot of real estate investments are structured such that there's a, a property lender which has a mortgage on the property, and then you have what we call a, a MES lender, which is a lender to a holding company that owns the equity of the entity that owns the property. So and the way it's structured is such that if there's a default, what the MES lender can do, and it's often subject to an intercreditor agreement with the property mortgage lender, but what the MES lender can do is go through a much simpler foreclosure process under Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code to take, uh, to exercise its pledge rights with regards to the entity that owns the entity that owns the property. So essentially it displaces the equity holder as the equity. Again, it, it, it's going to be stepping into the shoes of equity, so it's going to need to fund shortfalls and figure out how to deal with the 
senior property mortgage lender, but it's a streamlined way to foreclose on real estate. And while certain governments, including in New York, have put moratoriums on real estate foreclosures, there's, there's exceptions, and that has not been uniformly applied to mezzanine equity foreclosures. So uh, Goodwin, at Goodwin, we, re we worked on a mezzanine equity foreclosure that just closed back in November, and we see a lot more of these coming down the pike, and we're, we're actively working on a few others. So it's, it's a process that, you know, was utilized a great deal in the, in the last real estate downturn. I don't know that we're yet in a, a current real estate downturn, but I think there is there's going to be a lot of opportunism in the real estate space, including, you know, stepping in the shoes of equity through MES foreclosures. And the other issue that you have in the real estate space is that there's often what we call uh, limited recourse bad boy guarantees, which are huge disincentives for equity holders to file bankruptcies for real estate projects because then they're springing recourse uh, guarantees on the part of the equity. So what you also see is if you have an equity holder that that is you know views itself as out of the money and isn't you know inclined to incur personal liability by filing a bankruptcy to preserve its equity value and and perhaps try to restructure in bankruptcy, you're seeing what we call deed in lieu of foreclosure transactions, which is really just a consensual handing over of the keys to the lender, and then the, the lender essentially becomes the owner of the project. Uh, and we've, we've worked on a few of those over the summer as well. Well, it just sounds very complicated. So given this kind of dynamic, how are the, the landlords positioning themselves? Can they protect themselves or? Yeah, I mean, it's through negotiations and through, you know, being an honest broker, right? It, not all lenders want to own properties. Many just want to be lenders. There's, there's, but then when things trade to secondary lenders who buy into debt positions, who actually have a view towards ownership, that's when you get the, the strife. And the, the, really, the only way to stop a, a properly conducted foreclosure is to utilize bankruptcy, which, you know, with these springing recourse guarantee issues hanging out there, is a very difficult decision to make. And you also have the issue of many of these properties being held through special purpose vehicles, which have their own, you know, sets of, you know, what we call bankruptcy remote provisions that, that make it less uh, attractive and less likely that a bankruptcy would be filed, which is, you know, lender protective. So it is a very difficult environment for the landlords. And I do see a lot of transfer of, of ownership coming out in the next phase of this whole thing. I don't know when that'll occur, if that's sometime in 2021, if it's, if it's 22 or beyond, um, but you know, people are changing the way that they're utilizing real estate and loans that were, that were issued in prior years may not make sense anymore. And you know, that's when restructuring is coming to play. And so what, kind of, what are the lessons that we can learn um, from in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think it's cliche, but it's, it's really that, you know, liquidity is, is key and you need to budget conservatively and carefully and expect the unexpected and know that you, you know, know where your source of, of liquidity is going to come from, right? Do you have enough flexibility under your revolvers to operate in the normal course? Can you weather another shutdown, you know, due to COVID? during the winter months and maybe even beyond. And, you know, if your revenue drops 
during that period, you know, how are you going to operate? And it's for the, the, the industries like re restaurants and, and brick and mortar retail and, and things like that, to, to the extent you're going to run out of cash, that's when you need to really start focusing on bringing in new capital, which in these, in these industries is oftentimes going to be senior secured and your likely lenders are going to be existing secured lenders trying to protect their position. So that's when you start getting into all these dip financing negotiations. That's when you see loans uh, change hands in, and you get new lenders in there with a view towards ownership. So I think, I think we saw some of that this year, but, you know, I don't think 2021 is, is necessarily magically going to be a flush year for, for certain industries. And so to the extent they have strong management teams, and access to capital, you know, they should really be proactively focusing on a right-sizing their expense portfolio, and you know, figuring out how to maximize uh, profitability going forward in a difficult, in a very difficult environment. And finally, what are your predictions for 2021? Sadly, I see small businesses suffering greatly presently, and I, I view that pain as something that's going to be pervasive into 2021. I think the, the small business subchapter 5 of chapter 11 has been a great success, and, and it's, it, it's a path that I think a lot of struggling small businesses are going are gonna to have to rely on. Uh, we just saw it the other day by Chloe, uh, a you know, private equity-backed vegan restaurant chain filed for Chapter 11 under Subchapter 5, which is the small business provision, uh, which is kind of akin to a, a Chapter 13 case for small businesses. And so you, you're, you're having larger small businesses utilize this streamlined process, and I, I see more of that coming. And, you know, um, to that end, something that I've been doing a bunch over the summer and, and beyond, I guess it's already winter, right, uh, has been, you know, working pro bono and helping small businesses and consulting with them, dealing with landlord issues, explaining to them what bankruptcy solutions are. And, you know, to the extent any of your listeners are out there and have, you know, time or money or, or availability and we're thinking about ways that they can help people out, people who are supporting small businesses is going to be, is going to be key. And hopefully our government is able to put together a package of protections and stimulus to help help these business owners and the employees of these businesses going into 2021, because I, I view that as being uh, a, a, a huge tragedy that is not going to be easily solved, and, and these businesses need our support. Um, and my other wow. predictions really is that, is that we're, we're in a, a game of musical chairs, and the music kind of kept, kept going. And it's going to be a question of when does the music stop and when do lenders know that they're in the, the, the position to grab a seat, right? You saw it, you're seeing it right now, like, for instance, I'm reading reports that the senior secure lenders to AMC, the movie theater chain, are encouraging a Chapter 11 filing. Meanwhile, the company's out there raising, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of capital, so you kind of have this, these competing interests of, you know, do you have senior lenders that may be the, the fulcrum today trying to grab uh, upside for the future? And do you have, you know, junior creditors and equity holders, you know, raising more money to kind of preserve their optionality and their upside for the future? So it's, it's this, 
this is going to continue into next year, and you know, uh, I see a lot, a lot more opportunistic trades going to happen, and a lot more, um, you know, lender on lender violence occurring because, as as we've discussed, there's there's a lot of capital out there. It's hard to make that capital work, and there's only so many lending opportunities out there, investment opportunities, and so the the competition is is leading to a lot of you know, interesting dynamics in these in these capital rate situations. Wow, that's a, a great uh, answer. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Greg, I really want to thank you for being with us and providing us with such like an insightful snapshot of the last year and also what we can look forward to in 2021. It was my pleasure. And I wish you a happy holiday season and a happy new year. All right, thanks. And same to you.